Life in the Land of the Ice and Snow. My name is Heather, and today my guest is Kiki, who lives in Sweden, but you are half American, half Swede. Is that right? That is correct. My mother is Swedish and my father is American. How did your parents meet? Because that must have been before internet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, uh, my mother left Stockholm in the early 70s to go to America to be a flight attendant back when flying was very glamorous. Uh, and yes. she was living in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, out of the hub. And my dad was working on Capitol Hill. And they met on Rehoboth Beach uh, in Delaware, which is a very popular beach uh, area for people who live in the D.C., Delaware area. So that's how they met. Uh, and then they got married in 76. Uh, and then, yeah, my brothers and I were all born in Washington, D.C. And my mother was working for the Swedish embassy by that time as well. So she was able to organize Swedish passports for us. And she actually even set up Swedish bank accounts for us as well. Nice. And all these marvelous pre-planning things. Um, and then um, I moved here by myself in 2011. So almost nine years or just almost 10 years ago, I should say. It will be 10 years in August. Uh, visited my whole life. We have a summer house in Småland. Mom has friends in Stockholm. So I was here a lot, but I had never, ever lived here. And I didn't come here with her. I came here on my own just because I'd always toyed with the idea. Yeah. And I believe it's been almost a decade. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I'm very grateful to her because I didn't know that I had a Pushun number. I didn't know I had a bank account number. So everything she did for me back in the 80s was just incredible because it made my transition, initial transition into Stockholm very, very unbumpy, which was nice. Right. I mean, that's, you know, half of it is just dealing with culture and language. But the other half is, yeah, all the paperwork, getting stuff together, opening up things. Y you can't do anything until you have a person number. <laughs> can't even get a library card. No, wow. so I really didn't realize till I got here how much she had done for me because I, I honestly didn't even know I had a personal number. Like my brother was like, yeah, it's in your passport. I was like, no, that's just my passport number. And he's like, no, no, look at the other thing. And I was like, I had never noticed those numbers. And I was like, how? Where did those come from? And then my friend here who uh, really helped me with my uh, getting my stuff in order with Skatovic and stuff, she was like, memorize those last four digits. You're going to use them a lot now in the next few months. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. And then sure enough, it was like everywhere I was going, I was like, what is your person number? What is your person number? <laughs> and then my and then my bank account was a savings account. And I just had to transition it into a, you know, a, a debit account, whatever you want to call it. So, I mean, it was fabulous. So thank you, mama. <laughs> <laughs> so did your mother speak Swedish to you and your siblings? Yes, uh, not as much as we should have, we all agree nowadays, uh, because my father never learned Swedish as much as he should have. So uh, we kind of spoke Swinglish, I would say, so that we would, you know, kind of go between the two. Or I actually grew up in London, by the way, so everything I'm going to reference is mostly in London. So like we would use it as like a secret language if we were writing the tube or something, uh, which you had to be careful with because there's a lot of Swedes in London. <laughs> True. <laughs> But uh, I definitely came over here in 2011 with mediocre Swedish. I learned Spanish in school and my Spanish was definitely better than my Swedish was. Wow. Um, and after 10 years here now, my Swedish is really good and my Spanish has gone to being mediocre. So. 
But I looked up a little bit about you, and kind of it looks like following your mom's footsteps in the travel industry. You are a concierge for a hotel. That is so cool. And one of the and one of the only female concierges in Scandinavia. So wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so it's really exciting. So how long have you been doing that? Uh, so I've been in the hotel industry five years this May, and I've been concierging for about the last two years. It's uh, something I've been wanting to do for a long time, uh, and it's something I'm very passionate about, especially Stockholm and sharing it with people. And so. I was very lucky that two years ago, I was headhunted by the hotel that I work for to join their concierge team. And it's been everything I hoped it would be. I get get paid to talk about Stockholm all day. Like, it's wonderful. I would love that. So, I mean, what what does it all entail? It's mainly just helping everyone or... So we're a private hotel and one of the few private hotels in Stockholm. And we're actually three concierges on the premises, which is really incredible. And we basically offer everything from organizing your transfers from the airport, transfers to your cruise ship, booking you uh, restaurants, boat tours, tour guides, walking guides, giving you an overview of what you can do, making itineraries for you if you want. Yeah, I mean, just everything that you desire, we can achieve for you. So it's something we really pride ourselves on. And in uh, non-pandemic times, (laughs) we uh, usually would email kind of leading up to the busy season. We would go through our reservations and get an idea of people who are coming for more than three days or whatever, especially if we can see that they're international and reaching out to them and saying like, hi, like we're here for you. Like, let us know what we can do to help you. Or even in non-pandemic times leading up to Christmas and New Year's, emailing the guests and saying, just please note that. A lot of restaurants will be closed, but there are some that will be open. Can we make reservations for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day? And yeah, just making everything as seamless and smooth for them as possible and to get the most out of visiting Stockholm, however short or long their stay is with us at the hotel. I think we all could use that. Well, are there any like special things that you recommend that maybe are kind of off the usual tourist map? Yes, I think there's some smaller museums in Stockholm that people aren't aware of. So like one of my personal favorites is Tiska out on Jurgården, which is a beautiful building from the 1920s. Really does a great job of showcasing Scandinavian art. And it's a really beautiful place to visit as well. It's very far out, like it's like the far end of Jurgården. So a lot of people just don't make it out that far. Right. I think it's the last stop on the tram out there, isn't it? Or you have to walk from the last stop. <laughs> Even past that, yeah, it's past that. You would you could take oh. the 60, the closest you could get there would be with, with public transportation would be the 69 bus could get you out there. Uh, but even then you would have to walk a little bit. So that's why a lot of people do end up missing it because it's kind of past Rosendahl Botanical Garden. It's past Skansen. But yeah, it's also one of the few museums that's open at the moment during the pandemic. So, you know, Ooh, so, like, that's a very I, good tip. I would say about 80, 90% of the museums are closed right now. So uh, if you are looking for Tilska is a good one, then this is in the guidebooks, but people don't kind of focus on it till I push them to, <laughs> uh, is Millis Gordon, the sculpture garden. So it's, that's my personal, personal favorite museum in Stockholm. And they have a lot of revolving exhibitions, so right now it's Vivian Westwood. They've had ah. Sai. They've had William Morris. I mean, who, whoever the curator is the last couple of years has really been knocking them out of the park with really great exhibitions. And then the garden itself, where the sculptures and stuff are, is just breathtaking. And you feel like you're in Italy. It's just, yeah. When did you move to London? We moved to London when I was halfway through third grade. Uh, and oh. I went to something called the American School in London, which is why I have this weird non- 
British accent. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I call it. I call it Mid Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, it was fifty percent American classmates, fifty percent international classmates, and we were only meant to be there for a couple of years, and then we were meant to move back to the United States. But my parents ended up staying for twenty four years, and I stayed all through school. Graduated from the American school with an American high school diploma. So yeah, I mean, it's that's I consider London to be my hometown because you know the ages of eight to eighteen are very formative. Of course. Well, you must have had plenty of friends around that didn't go to the same school. Did you notice things that were very different between the British school and the American school? British seems really strict, but I'm not sure. So I have some minor learning disabilities and I would have definitely floundered in the British system nowadays. The British system is very good about addressing dyslexia and stuff, but back in the early 90s when we moved to London, it was definitely not something that they addressed as much as they do now. I'm also a horrific test taker and British school systems are all about the test. You do the GCSEs when you're 16 and you do the A-levels when you're 18. And these tests are the be all or end all. Like you have to do them. There's no choice. And then you go into university based on those. And if I'd gone to a British school, I would have failed those tests. That I would say the major difference is you have to decide at a very young age in the UK what you want to study at a university level and then choose those and then take those exams. And so that would be like at age 16 is generally when they kind of have to choose their path? You kind of actually choose them as early as the age of 11 almost. And then, yeah, you take the first series which are called GCSEs or when you're 16. And they're kind of like SATs, I guess you would say in a sense. But I mean, you get to choose your subjects, whereas obviously SATs are only English and math or whatever. And then your A-levels are more like an AP course, an advanced placement course that you choose again, your subject, and then for two years, you study that subject and then you take an exam at the end of it. I was trying to think of, of part of it, not the grading part or the test part, but part of it is a little similar to what I'm experiencing with my son in the Swedish school system. He's 16 and has just started gymnasium. And it seems like over here, you're supposed to choose... Which path you want to go in gymnasium grades 10, 11th, and 12th. So like he had to choose, he wants to go into computers, graphic design, you know, you can choose paths like that. And I find that so interesting. But I I agree that I wouldn't have known what I wanted to do. at that age. But I do think it, it is really nice when you can go to a school and just focus on what you're actually interested in, if you know what you're interested in. And for me, like I did a BFA in theater in the end for my for my undergraduate. And a BFA for me was like the perfect compromise because if I had gone to a if I'd gone to a drama school in the UK, you just it's called a conservatory. Like you literally only study theater. You have no other, you know, liberal arts classes or whatever you want to say. That's all you do for three or four years, however long the program is. And a BFA in America, Bachelor of Fine Arts, which is what I did, you do like 90% theater classes, and then you can choose like one or two classes a semester to get towards your jet eds, your general education requirements. And that was very focused. Like most of my friends did, you know, did BA level classes in whatever they did, history, English, philosophy. Yeah, that's right. I I saw that you are, were an actress. I don't know if you're still. Uh... I haven't done anything for a couple of years. So I was, I was doing, a, I was doing some when I first moved to Sweden. And then I, as I started to focus on the hotel stuff, it kind of got sidelined. It's something I'd like to get back into, at least on the side, just for the creative outlet, because I really miss it. But uh this little pandemic popped up and. Uh... <laughs> but what has it been like at the hotel you work with? Is it drastically reduced or is it about the same? <laughs> 
we're we've all since last March been what the Swedes would call permanentiered. So we're all furloughed, which uh, it means something different in every country that I have relations to. So in America, it means one thing that you have held your job but have no salary, but remain with your job and your health insurance. In the UK, it means that you've retained eighty percent of your salary, but you're not working. Uh, in Sweden, it means that I work a certain amount and the government pays for part of my salary and the hotel pays for part of my salary. So it's interesting when you tell people you're furloughed because you have to kind of clarify which version of furlough they mean because it really does mean something different everywhere else. So I have been working 60% since last March. <laughs> so Ooh. it was meant to end December 1st, but it's been extended till uh, July. So um, I'm very grateful because uh, a lot of people in hospitality obviously have lost their jobs. Uh, but I really miss guests and I miss tourists. And <laughs> the few that do come through the doors, we give our undivided attention to. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I would imagine maybe you're getting more Swedish guests than international. We uh, we definitely, in the summertime last year, uh, when we were doing relatively a little bit better, so to speak, it was 90% uh, staycation people. And then we did get controversially some COVID tourists, as I would call them. <laughs> so we, we did get some people from Switzerland and Germany and the Netherlands and stuff that had read about Sweden's uh, approach uh, and uh, wanted to come. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it was yeah, it was 90, 95% Swedish guests that stayed with us. Yeah, so you gave us a great tip on things to do, museums to visit. So I have one more question about tips. Restaurant tips. Oh gosh, that, that and see that is what I could talk about for. I could make you know a ten-hour podcast about restaurants. Good, because this yeah. this is what we're interested in. We we all like food. Before I, before I became a concierge, and even now more so since I became a concierge, at least once a week, a friend or a friend of friend would reach out to me via social media or text message and be like, "Hey, Kiki, like my parents are in town. Hey, Kiki, it's our ten-year wedding anniversary." Hey, Kiki, I'm really cra craving ramen. Like all the time, people reaching out to me because people knew how much I like to go out to eat and read about places to go out to eat. So I'm guessing you want to know what my favorite places are? Yeah, I would like to know what would you recommend to people? And then what do you like? One thing I want to say, which I think your, your listeners might be interested to hear, I, and because you've been here how many years, Heather? 20. 20, yeah. So I mean, you've, you've seen Salt change even more than I have. But, you know, when I, when I arrived in August 2011, food and alcohol tax in restaurants were both 25%. So it made it really prohibitively expensive to go out to eat in Stockholm. And don't get me wrong, it's still expensive in Stockholm. But the big game changer was six months after I moved here in January 2012, nine years ago, they brought in the food down to 12%. And that just made a humongous difference. And overnight, the restaurant scene in Stockholm exploded. I never understood that that was because of the food tax. I'm amazed at how much everything's grown and how many different types of food we have and great stuff. When I moved, you couldn't get a pumpkin at all at Halloween. Couldn't get Ben and Jerry's. And then, of course, you know, there was no Starbucks when I moved here and things like And now that I can get all that stuff, I rarely buy it. 
<laughs> it's like one, once you can get it, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> so I would say, yeah. So I approximately when I moved here, I think TripAdvisor said there was maybe like 17 or 1800 restaurants in Stockholm. And I think we're close to 3000 now. Wow. So I mean, it's, it's really cool. I mean, we have, you can literally get anything you want now in Stockholm. Peruvian, Japanese, Italian, Georgian, American, uh, Swedish. It's, you know, it's okay. It's not as diverse as London and New York, sure. But for a city of less than 2 million people, it's pretty amazing selection. And I think a very high standard. I mean, if you go to the places I suggest, you know, you get good service, good quality food. And yes, it's not going to be as cheap as Timbuktu, but it's going to be you know, worth the money. So for me, going out to eat is one of life's great joys. I agree. I, I kind of see that as an activity, <laughs> just going out to eat and visiting. So what what place do you like? So I would say my 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 go-to for guests and friends if they want to just have Swedish food, like they want to do traditional Swedish food, would be Pelikon on the Sudamam because it's just, it's got everything. It's got the atmosphere, it's got the history, it's got all the quintessential Swedish dishes, it's got the service, it's got the price point. And when you go there, you hear Swedish, you hear English, you hear Japanese because it is in every guidebook, but it's in every guidebook for a reason because it is really good bog standard traditional Swedish food. And then, uh, of course, the big revolution in Swedish cooking or Scandinavian cooking is this Nordic cuisine, which is the much more smaller dishes and the more kind of funky ingredients and stuff. And there's so many good places for that, from the Michelin star restaurants to the back beacons and stuff. Uh, a personal favorite, and they don't always necessarily do Swedish, is one also on Sudamam called Wood. It's a furniture store that also now has a little restaurant attached to it. It's right in Musabekin story. It's what they, they do what they call theme menus. So they're all, they're always like changing their themes and stuff. So like they did like one time they did a Michelin theme where they were like doing dishes based on famous Michelin star restaurants. They did one based on famous artists. So the plate, like the dishes look like famous pieces of art. They, uh, right now they're doing an Italian theme. They've done a tour de France theme. So they're super creative and they're constantly changing the menu. So that's really fun. I also really like, the, speaking of Peruvian, I, there's a really lovely little Peruvian restaurant on ringbagging called Checa, C-H-E-C-A. It opened maybe two years ago, I think, and really, really good ceviche and pisco sour wow. uh, and a great owner, really friendly, really passionate about, you know, bringing Peruvian cuisine to Sweden, which is great. You reminded me of something that maybe some of the newer people to Sweden might not know, and that's this uh, bakfika concept. Can you explain about that i don't know if norway and denmark have the same thing but it's to me to, to me i think of it as a swedish thing and it's back directly translates to like a back pocket and it's the a lot of the michelin star or gourmet restaurants in stockholm have a little sister bistro attached to them where they have a more paired back menu uh, a little bit the prices aren't as high and stuff and you call that like a back so, I mean, like, it's um, Gastrologique, which is a two Michelin star restaurant in Ustamam, just closed their Bakfika in December, but they've said that they're going to open as a new concept soon. Opera Shelleren has a Bakfika and Opera Baren. Those are the two I can think off the top of my head, but it's a really sweet little concept if you don't want to do the Michelin star prices or the gourmet prices a lot of these restaurants will have their back pocket restaurant. And it's the same chef, same, well, not the same chefs, but the same team, same ingredients, 
same suppliers and a really great way to get in. I think that's a really good tip because we have Valentine's Day coming up. Sure, yeah. Which falls on a Sunday this year. So a lot of people will be celebrating on Saturday. I, I know that because obviously people are, a few people are booking into the hotel and stuff for Valentine's. That's right. That reminds me, I need to make reservations somewhere. And a lot of restaurants, by the way, if people don't feel comfortable going out to eat, which I completely respect and understand. A lot of restaurants who never, ever had takeaway are doing takeaway now. So either takeaway from their menu or they're doing what they call the hell casa, which is like a weekend uh, box or if you want to say or like a weekend takeaway. And they basically prepare all the food for you, like a three-course dinner. And then you pick it up from the restaurant or if you live in the inner tool, like in the inner part of the city, you can have it delivered. And then you go home and they've made like a little A4 for you that explains like how to what to heat up and what to refrigerate. And then you basically make it yourself again. And a lot of restaurants have done that. And a lot of these places never, ever had takeaway before the pandemic. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer, but it's been really fun talking to you. And is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I, I, all I wanted to say was, even though I had a soft landing into Stockholm with all the wonderful things my mom did, it's not always that soft and I definitely went from a soft to a bumpy landing so it's but I for me Stockholm was really special and she was worth the fight but what was tough about it since you did have you know a, a basic understanding of language at least or maybe a little more and then things already set up I mean I came here to study originally but it was you know it was a course where like you didn't live on campus and stuff it, sorry I had a campus but you didn't you didn't live there or whatever I was you know living I commuted to the school or so you don't that that's usually a natural place where you can make friends and stuff. And obviously that didn't lend itself to it. So like most people moving to Stockholm, yeah, the hardest thing was making friends. And I'm a very people person. So I really struggled with that. But I really liked Stockholm from the beginning, both from visiting and moving there that I was like, okay, no, I'm just going to keep trying. And we're lucky in Stockholm versus other parts of Sweden, maybe that there's a lot of resources to meet people and stuff. So I really use that going to meetups and internations and, you know, really throwing myself out in there to meet people. And I I didn't meet that many people that way, but I met a couple of key people who I still am friends with 10 years later. Uh, And then through those people, I met people and it's, you know, it's like a domino effect. One thing that expats break themselves about is that they don't have any Swedish friends. Uh, But like, I mean, I love my, the Swedish friends I've made, but I also love the international friends I've made. So I wouldn't change that for anything. They both have their humongous merits. You have a good point though because I remember being the same way and thinking oh I don't have any Swedish friends you know I need to make some Swedish friends but I think you you probably just shouldn't put so much of an emphasis on that and just be okay with making friends the Swedish friends will come along through other people through your work through your studies and I I think sometimes it is a little too much focus for us at the beginning with I'm not going to fit in if I don't have Swedish friends I've also been incredibly fortunate that very few of my international friends have left you know living in a capital city with so many transient people of course friends have left but it's only from in my core group of friends I would say only three or four have left the last 10 years which was heartbreaking but I feel very fortunate because that is one of the big uh, risks of being friends with expats is that there's a chance that they're going to leave but thankfully most of mine have stayed Thank you so much again. Thank you for inviting me, Heather. Happy upcoming Valentine's Day.